happy late 4th of July, Independence Day, everyone. It's Monday the 5th. I'm in here solo because we're closed. Um, but I have uh, the great Danny McCarthy on the other line, so I didn't want to miss an opportunity for that, so I headed on down to the office. Uh, Danny, thanks for thanks for hopping on the podcast. Yeah, man. It's good to be here. So uh, for those who don't know who Danny is, if you shoot tournament archery, uh, you definitely know. Uh, Danny, you, 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 well, you're, you've been crushing it for years. You're, you're really having a good year this year. You want to tell everybody a little bit about yourself, uh, some of your background and, and tournament background as well? Um, yeah, so I guess I've been shooting professionally for 18, this is my 18th season. Um, so I've been doing it for a long time. Um, just uh, mostly shoot 3D. Um, I do shoot everything um, as far as like a couple uh, mark distance indoors, uh, a couple uh, outdoor events like Reading. Um, I've never shot field nationals or anything like that, but uh, I do kind of dabble in that stuff if, if it if it fits in our schedule. But, yeah, that's really it, just mostly a 3D shooter for 18 years. Um, I guess just, yeah. So that, that pretty much sums it up. How about uh, what? what's some of the – you're kind of underselling yourself here. What have you won? Uh, how about that? What are some of the different tournaments you've won? Um, I've won. I've won. I think. I think I've won pretty much everything um, on the 3D side. I mean, I've won uh, Shooter of the Year. I've won every every tournament. I think that there's that there's been held um, from ASA ASA Classics to IBO Worlds to. Uh, national event shooter of the years. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I don't want to list list everything, but I guess just in a general sense, I've done, I've had a great season. I mean, I'm really happy with my my uh, career. Gotcha. So, your wife also is a, a tournament archer and very very accomplished as well, isn't she? Oh yeah. Yep. She is. Gotcha. Very good. So. Yeah, uh, you know, like you said, 3D is your main thing. Um, when you like started, uh, what got you? Like, what got you into the the tournament scene, and and how long did it take for you to, I guess, feel confident? Um, you know, to where you kind of had the hang of it. I guess, like, did it did it kick off where you were you're doing pretty well right off the bat, or did you struggle for a few years, or how? Kind of explain how that went. Yeah, so uh, the way I got started, um, I had some local friends. Um, in the area, Randy Mara, uh, was his name. He's a dad, uh, one of my good friends, Robbie, and they, uh, wanted to go shoot some 3d, you know, I didn't even know what it was, but it was winter time, late winter, kind of getting ready for spring. And we went out into the, to shoot this polar bear shoot, they called it, where you kind of go out and walk through the woods in the snow and shoot these 3d targets. I had a really good time. Just, this is just a local event. I had a ton of fun, kind of fell in love with it that day. They wanted to go do it again like two weeks later. So I started following them around and, and Randy's, uh, we, the three of us kind of just made it a regular thing. Um, and then I found out that there was bigger tournaments like a year later. And so I started kind of attending these bigger events. Um, and I, I would not say I had success. I mean, I had success maybe on the local side, but I mean, keep in mind, very few people are attending, uh, some of those events. And then, as I scaled up, I just kept getting my butt throttled. I mean, people were putting it on me pretty good. Uh, I went to the, my first ASA tournament 
and I thought I would do well there. I think I got like 18th or 20th out of 32, and I I was getting outshot by kids that I didn't even have any idea they could shoot a bow that well. I mean, it was just like it blew my mind. It opened the door for like this whole new level of shooting that I didn't even know really you could. And then these are kids. You know, these are 17-year-old, 16-year-old kids that are shooting a hand, shooting back tension, shooting groups at 50 yards that, like, you know, we've all shot that group that's like a golf ball, right, or a uh, little bigger than a golf ball. And you're like, oh, yeah, you're really proud of it. But it's a whole different thing to see somebody do it over and over and over and over and do, like, three or four or five of those, you know, really tight groups in a row. And so it just really opened my eyes up to the possibility of how well some of these guys could shoot. I think that ASA was the first time I seen some uh, some big actual pros, Jeff Hopkins, Nathan Brooks, Bobby Ketcher, uh, guys like that shooting and shooting extremely well. Um, so it kind of inspired me to to work hard and to practice and see how how well I could, you know, hone my skills and challenge myself. And I uh, finished that season out. I ended up winning. Uh, three tournaments that season late in the year. So, like, the last three events of the year I won as a young adult. Um, then I went into men's open, had a pretty decent year. Uh, then I jumped into semi-pro, one shooter of the year there, and had a couple uh, good events. And then the very next season I went pro, um, and I won my very first professional tournament that I ever shot in. So I went to ASA and an ASA event in Foley, and it was kind of going to per- let myself know if, you know, if I'm ready or not. And, uh, I worked really hard. I, I, uh, moved down to Florida and spent the whole winter off season, everything. Cause it's not really, uh, good to train here in Wisconsin. So I moved down there prepared really hard for, uh, that rookie season and, uh, it paid off really well. So yeah, that was kind of where I found out like, okay, maybe, you know, if I work really hard at this, I can um, hopefully have a, you know, a decent season or whatever. And it just, it's just blows my mind kind of how it all worked out. But Wait, and here we are. I, yeah, it's, I've followed along. Um, kind of weird on my end. I, I, I kind of started archery more, in, I mean, not as a kid, right? But when I, when I got serious into archery, it was more into tournaments. Hunting was kind of... Uh, secondary. So I, you know, was fortunate. Bill Pellegrino, I don't know, you're probably familiar with him. He's yeah. in the Springs here. Yeah, um, Bill. Yeah, Bill was here and, and he was somebody I kind of, I hate to say idolized to make his head bigger, uh, emulated. Like Bill was the man, right? You watch Bill shoot and kind of what you're talking about here. And then Tony Clem uh, was here, another great shooter, and Tipton Cook. Those guys are out of Colorado. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, all, all amazing shots, amazing people. And so I, I think. I, I went to a tournament with, uh, it was actually when they had Cabela's, uh, it was, uh, Catalina state park and I, Bill invited me to shoot. And I think Hopkins and a couple other guys were in the group. And at this time I thought I was good. Um, you know, went in a lot of local shoots and there was a bear at, I don't know, 45, 45 and a half yards. I was the first guy to shoot. I shot just under the 12 and was very, very excited that I did that. And then I think I was the only 10 in the group. And I was like, huh, uh, these guys are really, really good. Oh, my God. Like, it was amazing what they could do. 
And so when I kind of got out of tournament archery, I've always followed along with it. Um, and so obviously I've followed along with, you know, what you've done, although you probably didn't know me from Adam until, you know, recently. Um, I, I, but you know, it's as weird as this sounds, YouTube, my wife shoots tournaments with me sometimes, local tournaments. So I watch some of the different, yeah. uh, bow junkie and, uh, and now, uh, competition archery media. So she, when I said, it was funny cause I said, I'm doing a, a podcast on Monday with Danny McCarthy. She immediately was like, is that the, the dude with his wife that win everything? And I'm like, yeah, that's all right. She's listening. She, she's paying attention, I guess. Cause that is just from, from YouTube. And I did that just so, she, you know, she can watch and see one, how accurate you can be with the bow. And then two, kind of how the tournament scene works on the national level, uh, different setups, things like that, where with, with, with you and, 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 and your wife, but you, you have been winning for pretty solid for, I mean, crushing it for what, 10 to 12 years, I guess I'm trying to, I can't remember exactly. I mean, you've been one of the higher end competitors, I guess, for the last 10 to 12 years. Am I right? Is that pretty close? I don't know. I mean, you guys decide that. I've been shooting for a long time. I think I've won, you know, I've won a lot of tournaments, but, man, it, just put, it puts me in a really weird spot to say. Yeah, Randy said I'd like have that. trouble getting you to brag at all. He was right um, with Black Eagle. He said <laughs> you. <laughs> but, you know, so you've been making a living at it for quite some time then. Um, do, you, do you have a real job or is archery all you do uh everything i do is involved in archery so it's either shooting or working you know working with companies yeah um on different stuff yeah gotcha yeah i mean that's that's quite an accomplishment and this year um you're having a hell of a year this year i mean how how have you lost yet right maybe one i'm trying to yeah. Oh, no, I've lost. Um, I started the year out with a second. Levi won the first term of the year in Foley. Um, so he won that one. He also won uh, the second IBO of the season. Um, so, yeah, definitely have, have lost. And, you know, last year I had a great season, too. Uh, I only won two events. We had, we had a shortened season, but I won two to four seconds. And out of those seconds, I, you know, lost I think all of those on the last shot. And so it's just some, some seasons fall your way and you end up winning, you know, those last shots, you end up winning them and other seasons you, uh, you're right there, but you, you just lose. I mean, these, these tournaments are decided usually on the last arrow more than not, more, more often than not. And, uh, yeah, get, be super thankful when they fall your way. When, yeah, you know, it, it, mental stability or uh, mental control. It's pretty amazing because you look at generally one through, you know, first through fifth place is a difference of three to six points or something. It's pretty, it's amazing. The, uh, the ability in, in the unknown class that uh, sometimes your, your scores are higher than the known pro class um, or at least in the running. And you guys are, are judging the yardage. So that it's pretty, pretty amazing. Um, uh, setup wise, uh, cause I'm going to get hounded about this if I don't ask you, what's, um, kind of your standard setup for 3d and obviously things change every year, but, but more, um, kind of the flow every year. Are you a four power scope guy up pin center drill? Um, you yeah. know, your bow arrow, that type of stuff. Yeah. So my setup doesn't change a lot. I mean, I'll change my bow. Um, but generally a lot of the stuff I try to keep as similar as possible, Particularly like my arrow, I like to keep 
uh, my arrow about the same build. So I've shot uh, PS23, 350 spine, um, or something right in that area for a long time that weighs about the same. That way I get a really good uh, understanding of how far it's going to drift in different winds. If you change all of that stuff, um, it just you have to, like, relearn it. So it's kind of like learning the dope of your gun. You know what I mean? If you're going to have a long-range gun, the more you shoot that rifle, the more you just get dialed in with it. So I shoot uh, usually low 70s, low 70 pounds this year. I'm competing with a TRX-36. Uh, last year I shot the same bow, TRX-36. I uh, really do love that bow. It's a great shooting rig, uh, kind of a good crossover for everything. Um, I've shot qualified for Vegas with that bow, um, won a bunch of 3D tournaments with that thing, shot great scores in Reading with it. Just It's just a really good shooting bow. I shoot a Excel scope, 31-millimeter housing, uh, which allows me to really have pretty good clarity with my pin. Um, a lot of, lot of uh, people probably listening to your show uh, might not know that, but your peephole size uh, has a lot to do with, with your, your starburst level of your pin. So the smaller you go in a peephole, the clearer your pins will usually be, but the darker the image starts to get. As you get below 332, it starts to get pretty dark, but it gets clearer. So uh, I like that size scope with a 332 hole because it fits the housing, um, gives me a really good sight picture. Um, I shoot uh, Hamsky rests, drop away, four-fletch, two-inch drivers on my PS23s. Um, Trying to think of if I'm missing anything. 70 percent mods. Um, other than that, you know, target bars, conquest bars, 30 inch front bar, 12 inch back bars, and uh, but all of that stuff's personal preference as far as how you want to balance your stuff out. Each shooter, I think, is a little different. And when I hunt uh, on my hunting rig, uh, I think I use a, a 12 inch front bar, 10 inch back bar, and completely balanced differently but that's about that's about it Any, anything else i missed there uh yeah actually quite a bit because button, button release yeah i'm yeah, just gonna button release. <laughs> so you're you said a 33 millimeter that's an inch and three eighths if i'm converting correctly 31 31 so 31 30, millimeter so for those listening in that is a very a relatively small scope housing um just so so is that an inch and a quarter inch and three eighths I think it's inch and three eighths. Okay, um, and so <sighs> without giving everybody on the planet target panic that listens in and throws a scope on, if Danny's shooting a four, five, or six power scope, um, or anyone, that does magnify your movement four, five, or six times. And for people that are already on the fine line of target panic, that can push you overboard because of pin float or pin movement. You don't really want to throw um, a high-power lens on um, sometimes if, if you're susceptible to target panic because, uh, of course, this is my opinion, which I'm asking you. You know, what you said you shoot a thumb button. Um, with people, when, when people, uh, what is your general advice? Like you said, it's obviously personal preference. Someone getting started, do you suggest for them to get a two-power scope or a four to get used to it, to shoot an up pin for guys first setting up kind of a tournament rig? And do you suggest for guys to try to shoot a hinge 
uh, or, or some type of a back tension as a trainer or a primary? Like, what's your general advice? I'm sure you coach people from time to time. Yeah, so I would I would say definitely get with somebody that, that knows what they're doing in your local area. And sometimes that's hard to find. I mean, it's easy to find people that say they know what they're doing. It's a whole other thing to, to actually find somebody that knows what they're doing. And, and not just knows how to do it, but knows how to teach it. So if you have, like, a really good pro shop, and I don't care how far you have to drive to find it, um, if you're interested in doing that stuff or getting started or it really, like, I think we all got started in the same place. Me, you, probably Aaron as well. Like we're all hunters, right? So we all just wanted to like, I don't know, fine tune our hunting stuff. And on top of that, I don't think you really get into this stuff unless you've got some really obsessive compulsive personality to a point to where you just like want to find, I mean, you could see it in the details of your packs where it's all about like perfection. You're trying to like, make every little intricate part better. Um, so by finding somebody that can really get you steered in the right direction and make sure that you're doing things properly, make sure that the equipment fits you. I mean, it's just, it's so important to have your draw length perfect. And I mean, you're probably not going to go to a shop and have them make your draw length perfect because there's only so much that you could see the rest of it's feel, but it needs to be close. And if the, and they can get you in the right structure form and get make sure that your body, everything is structured, you're standing up properly, straight, you know, your, uh, your, your arms and everything are aligned the way they should be. And then from there, they're going to teach you how to execute a shot. So I would say I don't care if it's a button or a hinge as long as you're being instructed how to do it properly. Um, I think a button is probably easier to learn, and yet it's harder to execute a perfect shot under pressure without punching it. Um, people, a lot of people have that issue. So I think a hinge is probably harder to learn initially, but once you learn how to properly execute a hinge shot, the chances of you actually incorrectly executing a shot under pressure is, is almost non-existent. I mean, I hunt with a hinge. I actually hunt. hunt everything with a hinge um and love it uh but yeah i would definitely recommend people run out there and and uh you know get some instruction on top of that i guess just one correction on the the scope side that you said like people uh you know the two three four five six powers um that's how they're described in archery but they're really not that powerful like they're, they're, it's, a, it's, a me, it's measured completely different in every other optics. Uh, in archery, like a six power is, is really like a 2.8 or 2.9 probably but uh, in reality. But it's still, don't underestimate that power. I, what you said about like giving yourself target panic from too high of a power is 100% true. And uh, it's a you'll see a lot more movement than what you think. So learn how to control that shot, execute a shot before you go bumping way up in power. I would say try to stay down to either no power in your lens while you're executing shots, and then just slowly add that magnification, get used to seeing that movement in your pen or in your sight picture. And then as you're still able to continue to execute a good, clean shot without anxiety, then you could step that power up a little bit. So in adding, you know, a little bit to that, uh, 
whether it be hunting or, or tournaments, a, a lot of questions we get. I'm, I'm a, a hinge guy. Uh, I shot a wrist rocket, you know, years and years ago, got target panic and um, uh, went to a coach, which I should have done in the beginning. You know, draw length was too, all this normal crap you see. Draw length's too long. You get yard yeah. back too much yeah. yardage. So they, they, they got me on a hinge. And back then there wasn't all the... Uh, I think Zenith had just come out in stand. There wasn't a, a lot of options. There was a stand and not the stand of this day and age. It was kind of a blocky, not super smooth looking hinge release. And then kind of like a Carter came out with a Colby. Uh, then there was Scott, you know, a lot of, a lot of, of other options. But at that time, it, you know, it was a pretty plain Jane looking, you know, back or excuse me, hinge style release. And I got one of those, and it was kind of reinforcing what Danny said. It just because uh, Danny McCarthy, Kyle Douglas, uh, you know, Tim Gillingham, or Levi Morgan do it. There's going to be things, and and you know, throw this back at me if I'm wrong. There's going to be things you guys do that 100% people want to emulate and follow. There's certain rules of the road you really don't want to bend or break away from, and then there's other things that are highly personal preference and how your own brain and body works for me i'll break a barrel off of um a thumb button under high situations but i'll never punch a hinge um you know which is my own brain discipline whatever a hinge and i get along super well for hunting in and tournaments um but you'll see a lot of people you know maybe try to emulate someone that's really good that maybe they shouldn't emulate certain portions um of what they're doing and in in the release is usually number 1 would you agree with somewhat of what i just said yeah. or what's what's kind of your comments yeah, on I, that so so i think like like i said i think a hinge what what i think so good about a hinge is when you it's so much just muscle memory, right? It's, it's, you learn the right muscles that need to be tight. You learn, you learn which muscles need to be loose. You need, you learn how to hold a handle and how your fingers, how like hard you should be squeezing or how relaxed you should be. And then when you execute shots on the back end, you also learn that when you rip a hinge off, like if you're actually like, I'm just going to finish it, it doesn't hit behind the pin anyway. It might hit close, but it hits like, you know, inches away. And so you learn that result teaches you that it's not worth, like, setting it off because it's just going to give you bad results. Whereas with a button release, a lot of times you feather that. If you feather that, that trigger off at the end, it'll still hit the dot. And you're like, ooh, you know, that was easy. I'd get away with that. Well, you can only get away with it for a little while. And then target panic jumps on your back and starts, like, shaking pretty hard. And that starts causing problems. But that being said, there is some shooters that can absolutely pound, punching. And so by no means am I, like, saying go out there and start punching your trigger. But I do feel like there is some very uh, particular uh, mental you know, processes that pe some of these guys, Kyle Douglas, Tim Gillingham, Mike Slosher, uh, I'm trying to think of some of the other Lutz, ones. James Lutz, Lutz. Lutz. Yep. Yeah. I mean, these guys, these guys, when they're on punching, um, and they, they execute such a clean punch too sometimes. And, and I don't want to throw them all in there as doing it all the time. Cause I do feel like 
some of those guys even shoot you know, like almost such a clean finish at the end that it's sometimes hard uh, to to see them doing it. But then when they're when they're you know flinching um, and it doesn't go off, it makes it really obvious what's going on. But gosh, these guys when they're shooting good, they they are shooting phenomenally good, like a whole nother level of good. So if you're one of those personalities, and I guess I don't know how you measure that other than try it. Um, but like Kyle, you know, used to shoot a clean hinge style wrist strap or button style shot. And then one year he just decided, this is just a couple of years ago. He's like, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to try punching. And he shot like five 30 X rounds indoors on a Vegas face back to back to back to back to back, like just pounded them. And then went on to win Vegas, went on to win indoor nationals the same season, like went on to win just about everything. And it just fits, it fits his shot, it fits his rhythm, it fits everything. And, and that's the thing, like, if you hear me saying this is how I do something, I am not saying this is the right way to do something. I am just telling you this is how I do it, this is what works for me, um, and maybe this is just what fits my personality or the way I process things in my brain. It's just what works for me. So I think trying, emulating, however uh, some different styles are is probably a really good strategy, but just do it carefully. Do it knowing that, like, when you go into the punch <laughs> mode like, and you start emulating Tim and Kyle and James, unless you're that 1% or 2% that can handle that, um, you might, you know, you might send yourself down the stairs, you know, seven, eight steps. You might have to reclimb that to get back to where you were, but it might be worth it. You know, it might take your shooting to a whole new level. Yeah, man, that's good ad- advice. And and I try, yeah, I can shoot well enough. Um, uh, and and when I say this, meaning, <clears throat> yeah, I can give well enough, decent enough um, a- advice. But I'm at by no stretch of the definition at the level of of you or some of the other guys. And I try to get people like you or a Levi or a Tim on to to kind of express different thoughts and methodologies like we're talking about because I, I do get kind of I say stubborn or hard-headed you're probably I, to my knowledge no one is one um like a uh an ASA um you know shooter of the year shooting a wrist rocket I think Tom Crow probably was one of the closer ones Derek Phillips shot that goofy yeah, kind of uh, hand or uh, Jack Wallace Wall- yeah. Jack Wallace has Wa- oh, yeah. Wallace shot Jack's the highest score. Not one of ASA Shooter of the Year, but he did, but he did shoot. Uh, he did win like the uh, IBO Triple Crown. I mean, he won like three or two ASAs that year shooting a wrist strap. Jack's Jack's shot a wrist strap very, very, very well. Uh, Michael Braden, um, he's he won tons of stuff back back when he shot Open Pro with so, a wrist strap. I think Jack Wallace it can be done. Didn't he shoot the highest score ever in an ASA with a puncher? Like a four forty eight or uh, something on forty targets or I think something. I'm not sure. Either I'm way, I'm not sure what he was using for a release. I, I, I can't. Hit, yeah, I can't. I can't remember either. But it was a phenomenal score and, and pretty amazing. Um, my point to people that ask me about this is: don't go off the unicorn. Try everything. So don't. Um, if you don't want to go through the um, the hassle and pain in the butt of operating a hinge or a back tension and you're like, I'm going to shoot a trigger, a puncher, because this guy does, that may work for you. That may not work for you. And what Danny, how he explained it, I think is perfect. 
you want to try everything and be honest with yourself and uh, not to bring up recurve uh, traditional archery, but a guy told me, um, you know, when you go in and try out bows, one of the bows will sing to you. One of them is just going to be the bow. If you're honest with yourself, I think releases are the same way. Now, you may have to work harder maybe at one or the other, but as you're kind of writing your own book of archery, the chances of you, I, I picked Tom Crow because I remember him shooting a draw length extremely long um, with 78 pounds and 25 12s or some some crazy setup that was abnormal Yeah, and doing very well. And I'm like, man, that's oh, what yeah. I'm, I remember Tom shooting like 27s even that might have with been. <laughs> 70 plus pounds for many years. Yeah, and I emulated that and I got target panicked. And so I, I was like, well, hell, if he can do it, I can do it. Well, I did it up to a point I couldn't to where then I got target panic. Now, I don't know if Tom ever had target panic. Um, he seemed like a hell of a guy and a hell of a shot. I didn't know him that well. I do know that I shouldn't have probably tried to emulate what he was doing because I'm Aaron Snyder. I'm not Tom Crow. And uh, the hinge, it would have been smarter for me to go to a range maybe for three or four nights in a row. Uh, try a different release each night or one a week and work on it, see what works best. If I have buddies, you know, borrow their releases and see which one works best for you. Um, it seems like you, you, you're kind of saying the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, make no mistake about it. Tim Gillingham, you know, some of the, these, the, the guys that we're calling right now, punchers, Tim Gillingham, uh, Kyle Douglas, both of those guys, like, Make no mistake about it, those guys know how to shoot a good shot. They know how to shoot a hinge-style release. They know how to shoot a button with back tension. They have the knowledge and the know-how and the skills that they've done that, and they've tried it, and they have worked a long time at it and shot great scores, and, and Kyle won tournaments and did great with it. They're not punching or doing it their style because they don't know how or can't execute a perfect back tension shot. They're shooting that way by choice because they absolutely blow the doors off of people when they're on and they're, they're shooting good like that. It, good luck. I mean, good luck keeping up with them. It's just sometimes like it, it's just it's the same thing even though with Levi or Jesse or any of those guys. I mean, total different shot. Levi's shot is clean. Levi shoots a really good uh, shot, whether it's a hinge, whether it's a button. Jesse Jesse Broadwater, probably the absolute cleanest, smoothest shot with a hinge, along with Chris Perkins. I would put his shot right there. I mean, just absolute flawless hinge shooters. And when those guys are on in their style, good luck keeping up with those guys. I mean, they're just as good as it gets in, in their own uh, execution style. And what those two have found, going back to, to Kyle and, and uh, Tim, and I don't want to make, you know, I think those guys know that I respect them both enough to I, where I can use them as an example, but they, they're doing that because it just clicks. It clicks for them so well, and I think that's what I was trying to say, is like go out there and try it, and exactly like your, your uh, recurve guru kind of was telling telling you whatever feels the best there should be a release that just feels comfortable in your hand but most importantly that shot when you fire when you learn how to shoot a perfect back tension shot i don't care if it's a hand or a button when you feel it it should be like wow that felt different that felt good that felt that's exactly what they're telling me i should be feeling that 
follow through that, you know, scapula tighten down all of it, how you feel it. And then whichever one you can repeat that shot with the most consistently, that's the one you should probably shoot. And if you're somebody that's punching or going to try that, you know, finding that button, Tim, I think has like an extension on his trigger. And I mean, he's, there's a, I don't, he's shot so many different styles. But he's always looking for that thing that allows it to allows him to do it just a little better, you know, a little cleaner. And I think getting that shot off as clean as possible is what's really the most uh, important part of what, however you shoot. Yeah, and I'm 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 glad you're on here because I probably would have totally skipped over the fact that a Tim or a Kyle, and I don't know Kyle like I know Tim, um, are capable of firing any release correctly. They have chosen their specific method because it's the best for them not because in my case I can't fire a well I'll get into this in a second I can fire a wrist rocket if someone's watching me and I'm on video and I need to look like I know what I'm doing I can fire one correctly under pressure situations it spirals down the shitter pretty quick um and I know that where a hinge it it does not I've watched him I've watched him shoot a hinge in like I've seen him do it on the bags. I've seen him do it in competition. I mean, he can do it. If, if he wanted to, Tim could 100% compete with Ange. He doesn't want to, and I don't blame him. Like, he shoots he shoots so well the way he does it that, that uh, you know, kudos to any of those guys that have put in enough time to find their style, perfect their style, and uh, just, you know, make something their own. And, and, and that's, that's the other thing, if I really didn't touch on it enough, it's not how you do something that I think makes makes you successful. It's how well you can reproduce or, or re- replicate, I guess is a better word, replicate that exact shot over and over and over and over. It's like literally honing it to a razor's edge so that it's second nature to do it over and over and over and over. And, and you can even do it wrong. And as long as you can replicate it, it's going to work. Because the machines that we shoot, these bows, I mean, they are capable of single-hole accuracy over and over and over. And if you can do that, if you can, you know, kind of take the error out, and the error being doing something a little differently, man, they are going to pound however you execute the shot. I was going to bring that up. You can even do it wrong as you do it, as long as you do it wrong the same way. And Absolutely, when I say but it does wrong. take a little more work. Yeah, I think it does take a little more work to 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 get that shot to be that much more consistent. If you're doing something mostly structural, like if you're not uh, structurally holding the bow back with the right muscles, it takes a lot more work. Um, but if you're structurally pretty sound, like it's it's uh, very easy, you know, to to replicate that shot sometimes. Yeah, yeah, and that that's all that's all good. I and I'm, you know, I'm super happy this conversation is going the way it is because this saves me. I can just send people to this podcast and they can listen because I again, I can shoot well enough, but I hate a <laughs> you got a guy that's going to you know, getting into ASA tournaments and asking me for advice and it's like, dude, I'm old. I haven't shot competitive archery. I, I kill everything on the planet, but tournaments are different. And uh you guys are your schedules are so busy. I, I hate to, to bug, you know, uh, higher caliber shooters too much for podcasts because um 
you know, you've, you've got a life to live, but this is important because there's a lot of people listening in that'll be listening in that this is super good info. Um, you know, so we talked like with the releases, so, you know, kind of walk your own path. I think scope housing sizes, um, is another one that can be a little bit different. I like a little bit, um, I'm, I'm an inch and five eighths guy, the power, some guys just mm-hmm. shoot an up pin. Some guys do center drilled. Um, some guys shoot a clarifier. Some don't, um, that's another thing I think you just need to uh, experiment with and see, not necessarily, um, you know, it's going to be what you're most accurate with, obviously. But me, when I draw back, like I shot, um, you know, uh, Tony Klim, um, he, he, he's kind of my neighbor, lives down the road from me. So Tony is like you, shoots an inch and three-eighths housing. I, I, I can't see through it. I mean, I, I'm, I'd pull up on a target and, uh, you know, it's a 36 yard, I don't know, pick Turkey. I'm like, how the hell do you even shoot? Like, I got to see the target where he, on the other hand, probably like you, if he had an inch and five eighths or inch and three quarters, you know, it's like totally abnormal and, uh, you know, it's, it's awkward for him, man. That's all personal preference. So what, what do you, I mean, same kind of thing with the release. Would that be your advice? Just try a few different housings and get what you're most comfortable with. Uh, yeah, I mean, I would say it really, it really depends. So, like, what I guess to go back, the four three Ds. The, by the way, the paper is a little bit different. Sorry, go ahead. Okay, well that that actual scope housing, the one that I was talking about, the thirty one mil, it's, I think it's an inch and three eighths lens. Um, I want to say, or somewhere right in there. But the actual housing itself is an inch and three quarters to the out outside edge of that scope, but. It's the reason we shoot that stuff. It's n- it has nothing to do with the with like our sight picture. It mostly has to do with fitting our peep and fitting that peephole. And I think this is something that really uh, should be heard by hunters. Like a lot of scope housings for hunting are huge. I'm talking about like giant. Yeah. And they're made that size because a lot of people shoot these big, you know, really big peeps, quarter inch peeps, and 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 bigger. Um, and it's, you know, that's great for letting in light, but it still makes your pins hard to see. Um, it makes, it, it doesn't, by not having that peephole effect where it changes how the light and everything focuses on the back, uh, on your retina, um, it makes it harder to see the, the end of those pins. So by the reason we shoot a smaller... I, I got to yeah. interrupt just real quick because I just had a guy write me a book about this. He thought his vision was bad. And with his specific scenario, he's asking me about the, the pins. And, I, you know, finally after, you know, a few minutes, I said, hey, what size uh, a peep are you using? And, and uh, he it was either a quarter or, and I'm not sure, it was either a quarter or larger. And I said, oh, man, so throw a 316th in there. And it cleared it up immediately. And when I say cleared it up, he wasn't getting the, I, I always call it pin flare or p- pin blur. Yeah, starburst. Star, yes. Like your pin starburst. That smaller. Looks like you're looking at a flashlight shining you in the face. Yeah, and it's it's horrible in different lighting situations, even worse sometimes. So with what Danny's about to talk about, this is extremely important. This is why it's nice to have a, a, a site that can go in and out to marry up to your peep 
or an adjustable peep to go larger or smaller, which, Danny, I'll let you take it from here. But this is extremely important because a lot of guys just don't know this. So go ahead. Yeah, so anyway, like, I guess just getting to the, you know, meat and potatoes of this stuff, a 316th peep is, you know, pretty pretty good stuff. I mean, that's a that's, that's a good good size for target, you know, for – for uh, hunting, you know, really that that three sixteenths up to maybe an eighth is kind of where I I prefer. Anything much over that, uh, maybe you could go one size, like maybe a five six or or three sixteenths. I'm sorry, and smaller is really where I would go for for hunting. So. Uh, down to where we shoot target, I meant 116th, 332 is about as big as I'll go for target. And it's just because we're shooting lenses, we're shooting stuff where, you know, our bullseyes are very tiny. So we need to clear that pin up even more. You know, really, really get that pin really sharp so that we can aim at real small things. For hunting, you want, you still want a really good, you know, fine pin, but you have to merge both qualities of letting light in and having an aimable pin. And I think that's where that uh, 332 up to 316 will get that job done. And just make sure that it fits your, your, your uh, scope housing. And I think that's kind of what you're saying by, you know, have, being, having the ability to move it out or whatever. If you go with too big of a housing, um, that 316 or even a, you know, 332 peep, it's just going to be too small that you're not going to be able to see your bubble. It might cut off some of your smaller, you know, some of your pins if they're on like the top side of your, your scope and the bottom side of your scope, if you're shooting a multi-pin housing. Um, so, you know, having, having a peep that's the right size to fit your scope is important, but mostly, you know, picking a scope size that's going to fit that peep size that you probably should be using. Um, I think that would help a lot of people. I, I just don't think that's explained enough um, or people understand that, that like you pick, if you pick a, if you pick a site and it has a giant housing, you're going to have to pick, it's going to force you to use a big, bigger piece than what you really should probably be. Uh, so I- I- example, um, Anders, uh, he's the head of my production. Anders is a giant. I don't know what he is. Six, 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 seven. So, Straight string angle is another thing, which I don't know. We, we probably don't want to write the gone with the wind today in, in archery, but uh, the string angle and how far the peep is from your face also. <laughs> all three sixteenths peeps aren't the same. So if you're Anders in 6.7 and shooting a 33-inch bow, that three sixteenths peep is quite a ways away from your eye depending upon your structural build. Correct. All, <laughs> yep. all of these things come and in. And it's going to give the same effect of a smaller peep. People. Exactly. And Anders was shooting left and right at 40 yards and he texted me a photo and he said, is this my grip? And I'm like, uh, it's probably your peep, man. He's like, what do you mean? I said, well, you're probably creeping or fading out of the left or right side of your peep a little each time. He's like, well, what's that have to do with anything? And I'm like, Ooh, I'll talk to you Monday. Uh, this is not something I can explain in text. And so I had him hold his right hand, make a little peephole, Right make a bigger hole with his left hand. And I'm like, all right, shift that in your eye. And and then he was, uh, yeah, I'm like, like all right. Your head. Yeah. 
so then he was moving his left, and I'm like, all right, dude, there's your left and right. And like it, it was like this epiphany. He's like, oh, holy cow, that's really important. And I'm like, well, does your peep match up your scope? And he's like, I have, I have no idea. And I'm like, well, shit, man, how many times have you shot your bow? He's like, I don't know. I just kind of throw it in the middle. And, and I'm like, okay, let's, let's dissect. And we, we went into what you and I are talking about. So for, for me, if you're going to get a static mounted sight uh, that cannot be adjusted in and out, you need to be prepared to have a couple different peep sizes to marry up the peep to the housing. Um, you know, me personally, I got so used to shooting a 316s peep uh, for, for tournaments that I stuck with it for hunting and, it, and it's been fine. It's kind of a happy medium all the way around. You know, for me, it lets just enough light in, but still fairly accurate. When I was shooting a compound, you know, I'd say probably hunting a quarter inch is probably more the, you know, the standard. But with that 3.16 peep, I, I shoot um, uh, usually a spot hog hunting site. And I would need to have that, um, you know, the closer you bring the bar in, the larger your housing technically gets, the farther away, the, the smaller it gets. All of these things matter because accuracy matching that peep perfectly around, you know, that the housing. Uh, am I screwing this? Do you want to dive into that a little bit? I'm pretty no, not sure. not at all. And I mean, we're we're getting into a pretty deep rabbit hole here with this stuff, but because <laughs> it it's just if if you try if if people are listening, you know, they could grab their bow, they could walk out and just see and just check, make sure that it fits. But I'm only going to throw this little curveball in there so that you're aware of it. Lighting. The, the 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 amount of light that's available when you're testing this is going to completely alter the perspective of what you're seeing. So if you're out in absolutely super bright sunny light, it's going to make your peephole seem very small. So a three sixteenth peep in a, on a really sunny day might fit your uh, might fit your housing too small to where you can't even see your bubble. And then you go out there at dusk and it's you know, you could see a half inch on every every side of your scope. So keep that in mind um, for however, because we're, we're, this podcast, there might be, you know, some target guys listening, but it's probably going to be a lot of hunters. Um, make sure that that peep fits that scope under the lighting conditions that you're probably going to hunt with. And a lot of hunters can go could go with a little bit smaller peep because when it gets dusk, that quarter that quarter size peep or that three sixteenth peep might fit their housing while they're practicing, you know, archery in their yard, sighting in their bows. But then when it hits, gets dusk, there is so much room on the edges of their peep that a lot of those guys are getting some of those low shots, those left shots, those right shots, high, whatever, because there's so much room, wiggle room, they can see all around their scope. And it's just that much harder to uh, have your scope and peep be concentric and perfectly lined up, almost second nature. Because under pressure with, with an animal there, you're just going to draw back and be like, yep, I can see my scope, I must be centered. You're going to fire that shot. And if you're just a little left in your peep, you're going to hit way left. If you're a little right, you're going to hit right. Or low, way low. So check it in low lighting. That's where you want it to fit. So add, hunting. adding to that on the hunting situation, um, the other thing that you want to take into consideration, or, or this is what I suggest, and then, you know, Danny, you can chime in when I'm done. Uh, it needs to marry up to your hunting style, uh, and that is also lighting, distance, uh, all of those variables, meaning 
a whitetail hunter is probably going to want to, uh, you know, obviously do everything we're talking about, but maybe with a little bit larger peep for lighting, especially if you're hunting some out of a ground blind, uh, when you're getting into really low light situations and not farther distances where a Western hunter, you may three sixteenths might be the largest you want to go. Cause you may be, and I'm not, I don't want to get any hate mail about long distance shooting. If you're going to reach out and touch something at a farther distance, smaller, the peep, obviously with everything else coinciding, everything matching up, smaller the peep the more accurate you you should technically be or could be um there's less variables now that is what i suggest now you danny you're actually a professional i just pretend to be one on a podcast that is what i tell people if they're spotting stock western hunting longer distances you might not want a sex toy for a peep site you you want to get her down a little bit for for more accuracy am i uh talking out my ass stole the words right out of my mouth that's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah, I think you're hitting the nail on the head, man. It's That's exactly it. You you know, longer distance stuff, you're going to want your pin as crisp as possible. And on top of that, it, it's not that, you know, accuracy can't be achieved with these bigger peeps. They absolutely can. It just takes so much more uh, attention while you're shooting the shot to make sure that you're staying perfectly centered. The larger you go the more you're going to have to pay attention to that, the more uh, consistent you're going to have to make your anchor and the more stable you're going to have to stay in your anchor. When you go to a smaller peep, your subconscious does so much of that stuff almost automatically because it's able to see that you're coming out of center very easily because you you start to not be able to see. You start to run into the edge of your your, uh, peephole. So it just takes the – it takes some of the error – out of it for you actually doing something wrong and it i think it helps you just do stuff a little more consistently yeah i know I, so I, I would definitely I, recommend small for long distance when i shoot redding where we shoot out to 100 yards i i'm never gonna i never go larger than 116th um but that's target you know if i was hunting i would probably be right in that 332 area would be about as big as i would go yeah. And, and these are all important things. I'm, gl- I'm glad we're talking about this. This is one of the better technical podcasts we've we've done. So while you're saying rabbit holes, I'm saying thank God because I don't have to answer this in a message because people can can listen. Um, yeah, it's important. And it doesn't get you know, you go into a pro shop and not all pro shops are good. But for the most part, you you know, most when I say pro shops, I'm, I'm not saying a Cabela's is bad, but a real actual pro shop you're going to get some, um, you know, you're going to get good advice, but you go in there and they're going to allot an hour, let's say, to get your bow set up. The rest of this stuff, you, you got to learn on your own or keep coming back and asking questions or, you know, uh, Danny, you said it, find a guy who knows what he's doing. I probably drove Bill Pellegrino and Tony Clem crazy asking them questions because they just didn't know. And I would, hey, what do you think? And, they're, and, and they've been doing it for years. It was a great uh, sounding wall to you know, to bounce these, these questions off of, which is how I, you know, you know, learned a lot of this stuff was through guys like that as, you know, as well as others. And so, you know, this podcast is, is great. As we're diving down this rabbit hole though, let's talk about one of the funniest things that I see, uh, which is guys throwing offset bars and V bars and shit on their bow for absolutely no reason. Cause it's the cool thing to do. They serve a purpose and they can be a negative if you don't set them up correctly, you, you really don't want to just throw an offset bar on there for the greater good of looking cool. 
they, they do serve a purpose. Your stabilize, stabilization system serves a purpose. And I know a lot of guys that just kind of throw a bracket on there and screw it on and start winging arrows and don't really have a rhyme or reason why. Do you want to talk about that a little bit and, and kind of your system and what you suggest on, on the stabilization side of things? Uh, yeah, I'll touch on that. One thing I'm going to say, though, is uh, for some of the stuff you just covered right there, is I think in this industry, archery shops get a really bad, unfair shake in, in the sense that, like, people are like, my, my pro shop's not good, or, you know, other people are blessed with really good pro shops. I would say, like, you kind of started to say it. Like, it is up to you to learn this stuff. And I think, like, if, you're, if you shoot long-range rifle, you know, it, it's just – you shouldn't have this uh, expectation that your pro shop is going to be so deep into technical archery that they're, you know, they're going to know everything about target archery and how to do it perfectly. Those, those archery shops are hunting-based for the most part. If you're lucky enough to have a very good uh, target shop, um, you're, you're spoiled. I mean, you're, you're incredibly lucky. And so most of those guys are pretty good, but... But finding the right, you know, person that can steer you in the right direction, really look for a target special shop, um, or more so, go to these events. That's what these tournaments that, you know, that I go to and stuff, that's where you're going to learn the most stuff, is getting around these guys. I don't care if it's in the lower levels of amateur. Those guys know what they're doing. I mean, a lot of those guys are really good shooters, and they can steer you in the right direction better than, you know, maybe somebody that's just a hardcore hunter sometimes. So, if, if you're interested in getting that kind of serious technical information, doesn't matter if you're, if you're a rifle shooter or a, a target archer, you're going to have to go to, like, target competitions. You're going to have to, you know, go to some long-range rifle matches to probably really get some technical information compared to just, you know, driving down the street, going to your local gun shop. You know, those guys, you, you, you go in there and ask them about a night force and ask to see one, they're probably not going to have something to show you you know, or whatever. So when but you're, I, I'm I, just saying, I'd like to, you add, know what I'm saying. Yeah. Right? I want to add to that. When you go to a pro shop and, uh, you know, I've worked at a lot of different ones. There's only so much margins in, in what they're offering. Uh, and there's so much, only so much margins in the bow, which means there's a allotted time to set up your arrow, set up the bow, get you shooting a bullet hole and get out the door. And, and I preach this to a point I probably drive people crazy. You can't hit the easy button. You got to do the work. You got to learn. You got to read. You got to ask questions. And I'm 100% agreeing with with Danny. If you listen to a podcast that I do on uh, tuning an arrow, FOC, and let's say cutting your arrow down to well, anyway, that is not things that a pro shop is going to do for free when you get like you talk to Tim Gillingham and he tells you to shoot all three dozen arrows. You just bought bear shaft through paper index like that a pro shop doesn't do that shit. They don't have the money in. They'll go out of business. You have to learn that on your own, put the work in and now pro shops are great. They're going to help you, but there's a certain level that and, and Danny said it uh, again and right. Long range rifle shooting is the same way. Photography, when you go to a camera store and buy a, a camera, they're not, you're, you're not going to, it's not like you're going to be go meeting Marty Stoffer and they've got eight hours to teach you. You got to learn to use the camera. That, that's up to you. They're going to get you a base and get you out the door and that's their job. And they've, they've done it. Um, I, I'm, ag- I'm agreeing with you hundred percent. Cause I've had some 
pretty horrific messages about pro shops. And there is some shops. of those shops that have that information that would love to share it with you. And they will spend the time to, to, to teach you. But they're oh, just not that over, common all yeah. throughout the United States. There's just not that many people that know, that know it that well or even have the resources to teach that stuff. And so, yeah, I mean, if you're super passionate about this game or you want to get better or you want to take your shooting to the next level, I'm just trying to put people in the right direction so that their, their time is utilized best. There are so many good resources out there from YouTube to, you know, competition media to Bow Junkie to uh, archery tournaments all over the place. Like, go get it. Put, put, some, put effort in the right direction. In the, you know, if you put that effort – um, and focus it to go get it in the right spots, man, you could, you can, the, you could, you could raise a bar very quickly compared to, there's a lot of guys that I hear that's just like, well, you know, my area, my shop just doesn't know. And, and I'm just saying it's not their responsibility to know that stuff. If you want to get that information, if you want to get better, like, Man, in this day and age, the amount of resources that are out there for information is so abundant. Just go look for it. But put your, put your time, energy, effort, and focus into the right spot. Yeah. And that's, no, I, I agree. The know, only thing I would add to podcast. that is I've never met a professional archer that wasn't willing to help at the right time. Don't interrupt him in the middle of a 300 round. Wait till he's done. <laughs> but... I vet I, I haven't met very many anyway that weren't more than willing to spend five minutes and explain something to you, um, you know, after they're done shooting. So I mean, don't be afraid to ask. Don't be a dick about it. I mean, don't ask in the middle of a three hundred round. But I I can't imagine. Yeah, I mean, that, if you know, I already dropped a nine, I'm at a two ninety nine. Ask away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My weekend's over. Uh, but other than that, yeah. Uh, no, wait, I agree. Yeah. And and I I think you get that too. Like we're you know people. People maybe are just like, oh, man, I talked to him. He's a dick, whatever. Well, a lot of that stuff um, could have to do with just when you, know, when, when you caught him. Because like, we are sometimes on a tight timeline. I'm not making mistake or excuses for anybody, you know, treating anybody poorly. I, I try to, you know, treat people with respect and stuff. But, um, but yeah, it's, that place is a place of work sometimes, tournaments. And so just, man, it's an open book of, of information that you can get. But, be respectful of, of time, and if it's somebody's, if you know, a seven o'clock or a ten o'clock line's about to start, don't start asking questions at nine fifty-five. Probably, you know, that you're probably going to get somebody that's in a hurry. Yeah, and, and that goes late. with everything, hunters as well. I mean, you know, when you when you ask, you know, and a guy's in a hurry, you know, don't hop on social media calling him a dick. You might want to ask him again at a different time when he's got more time on his hands, and, that, and that's just life in general. That's also just the internet is a very good place to complain as well. And it's also a great place to learn. So on the learning portion, getting back the stabilizer exactly. aspect, how yep. many people do you think just throw an offset bracket on for the hell of it and, and don't uh, just do it to look cool? Um, and, and do you want to, I don't know. That? I mean, cause, cause I, the crowd that, that I, you know, see, I think a lot of those guys, they have a very, um, they have a very basic understanding of what it's, what stuff's for. So I don't see that stuff very often. Most of those guys know how to use it. They might not know all the uh, tactical side of, you know, all the different things that stabilizers can do. Um, and, I, and I'm probably not 
the best person to talk about it just because I my my uh, feelings on stabilizers is they're you know they're there to balance your bow they're there to help you aim um, but each person is so different that uh, I don't think you know balancing your bow like me is going to help you and you know maybe your bow weighing 12 pounds might not be the best thing for you you should be you know as often as you get to shoot or your muscle structure or whatever you should be shooting like a seven or eight pound bow so trying to emulate people in the stabilizer side i think is is not a good thing you should really uh throw you know buy like i would say recommend like a 30 inch front bar if you're going to shoot target you're going to shoot hunting you know 12 inches on the front enough uh it's probably could be even too much sometimes and certain blinds but uh just just kind of play around with it get a very versatile bars for target 30 and 12 is a really good combo 30 inch front 12 inch back 12 is going to allow you to shoot downhill pretty steep not hit your hip uh in that downward angle same thing with hunting if you go to a if you're not familiar with shooting a back bar and you throw a back bar on there and you go with you know a 15 inch bar because you've seen me have a 15-inch bar or Tim Gillingham or somebody shooting a 15-inch bar, you know, just know that when you shoot downward angles, that hit, that thing's going to probably poke you in the hip, and it's going to, you know, really make it really difficult to shoot that downward, downhill tree stand shot or whatever. So, so just I, I, free playing with some of that stuff. Kind of adding to what Go ahead. Danny's saying here and, and what I suggest when he says trying it out, I just do group mapping is what I call it. Uh, for hunting, 40 yards for for tournament or, or or other bows, I'll go 60 to 80. And when I say that, I it will have different setup uh, setups for for stabilization, meaning a little bit different weights on the front or on the back. And I'll just shoot groups and mark my groups and figure out where the bow levels out best in different situations, where I'm grouping best, when I got tired, you know, all the all the different things, and figure out what's best for you. I hunt with a 12 pound bow. Should everybody hunt with a twelve pound bow? Probably not. I don't. I don't mind Absolutely it. Absolutely not. But some, again, I'm I'm more the unicorn on that one. Um, most guys aren't going to like you're, that. You're a hundred percent the unicorn. I shoot a lot. I mean, I compete and I shoot every day, all the time. And my bow is, you know, low elevens, but it takes a lot of strength to hold that bow up. And there's a lot of things you could just look at the math and the physics and say, okay, heavier the heavier the bow, the more stable the platform. But yeah, so long as you can physically hold it and aim it. Otherwise, like, you're way better off. You know, women, let's – my wife, she shoots really well with a significantly lighter bow. She practices all the time. But if she tried to shoot my bow, she wouldn't be able to aim it that well. It's just too heavy. It's too physically heavy. And so – Meshing that stuff up, knowing that, you know, the more weight you put on those bars, the heavier everything gets, it's not necessarily going to make you a better shooter. So dialing that into each person their own, I think, is what you're trying to say. And it's the same message I'm trying to say. Yeah, definitely. And for me, I mean, there's a few bows where I started off. When I say bows, this is hunting bows, not tournament bows. I uh, I started my setup off with a an offset a bracket, a kicker, whatever you want, a back bar, whatever you want to call it. And mm-hmm. it just wasn't, you know, mapping my groups at 80. I just wasn't getting enough out of it to carry the damn thing around. I mean, it's, uh, and I backpack, I think you're sim- somewhat familiar with, 
you know, we do some 14 day backpack hunts and I mean, legit seven to Mm -hmm. nine miles in, you know, I'm cutting the handle off my toothbrush and here I have a, you know, giant 12 inch (laughs) back bar for no reason. Don't put it on there if you don't need it. If you need it, put it on there. But I mean, if I'm shooting at 80 yards and I'm hitting a paper plate with my hunting bow with or without the back bar, the back bar is coming off. I mean, I'm not, like, yeah, I don't want to carry it for the hell of it, but if I shoot better with it and it's applicable to what I'm doing, well, yeah, I, you know, put it on there, but you don't want to carry it for no reason. You want to make sure you're more accurate. You want to make sure your bow levels up quicker. If you're not getting all the benefits out of a kick of back bar or adding weight to your bow, man, don't do it. Cause these guys do it and nothing against you guys are the best in the world. Or certainly don't do it. Cause I'm doing it. Do it because it's making you a better shot, and I think that is a big issue with stabilizers is people throw a bunch of crap on to look cool but don't actually get the benefit out of it, um, which by all means, hey, physical fitness is great. Pack that thing around. It'll make your left arm huge. You'll look like Hellboy, but it's if it's not benefiting you, don't put it on the bow. Make sure you're actually getting something out of it. Yeah, and, and you know, there's no one size fits all when it comes to hunting. There's no one piece of equipment is – going to work in the midwest is going to work out west i mean you you pick your setup based around that hunt and you know there's there's for target archery you know we're using particular bars because it's target archery you know it's what we're doing we're picking the best tools for the job and we're making it the most efficient we can if i'm going you know on a hunt somewhere or if you're going you know hunting mountain goats you're not going to pack a 30 inch bar and you know back weight with a 12 inch or a 12-pound bow. It's just, I think some common sense needs to be used there uh, on the guys that are picking their stuff, and I think for the most part the hunters totally understand that, and they're going to they're gonna make their stuff as efficient as possible, be it weight, et cetera. But 100% what you're saying, like, you know, practice with how you want your stuff to be, but at the end of the day you want it to be very efficient. You, want, you don't want to put in all the work on a 14-day trip like you're talking about only to draw back and really struggle to hold your bow level um, because you've been practicing maybe at home all the time for your other hunts with a back bar. And then you cut the weight uh, to go on this, you know, long, grueling, 40-day, whatever kind of hunt it is, and now you can't level your bow. So so definitely, you know, putting some pre-prep into that hunt um, with the way your equipment's going to be set up, I think is going to give you more benefit than uh, any piece of it, you know, single piece of stabilizer equipment that you could buy. Definitely. Um, Danny, it's, it's been an hour and six minutes. Do you got another 10 to go over arrows or do you need to hop off? No, man, this, this, we can keep going for a little bit. I got, I got another half an hour. Okay, cool. So arrows, this is tournament and, um, and, and hunting. Um, as you've probably seen, or maybe, maybe you haven't, there's, there's this giant, uh, FOC crisis going on in the hunting world. Um, and, it's a little bit weird for, for, for me. Cause I, I killed so much stuff with, you know, 125 grain point and a 12 grain RPS insert or whatever the hell it was. Right. Like I didn't, I did. I, I literally only started checking my FOC recently cause people kept asking me so much. Part of it also was cause I went from a compound to a, a stick bow. Um, my, my views on, on arrow setups is, is accuracy, uh, is extremely important and you don't want to, focus on a certain percentage of FOC. I, I never even checked it, right? I just wanted to be accurate, wanted to be shooting bullet holes, wanted a decent amount of momentum. 
I wasn't planning on shooting at a leg bone, so I didn't really care about a 650 to 800 grain arrow um, or, or anything like that. I just wanted accuracy with a happy medium all the way around. That was for hunting. For tournaments, you know, generally I tried to run, well, back in the day I ran 50 grain hot points with 23 12s up to 70, but as, as time went on and technology got better, I liked 140 grains up front. I usually shot a 23 12 or like right now I, I shoot your arrows, the PS 23s. Um, what would your suggestions be on the tournament side of things ballpark everyone is different but and we're talking here 3ds not not field or indoors um rough numbers to to look at for a setup for tournaments for 3d archery and rough numbers for an average person 28 29 inch draw um you know 65 to to 70 pounds for hunting to kind of keep um common sense bring it back into the ballpark because there's a lot of guys lobbing 800 grain logs right now because people are promoting this the ashby stuff and 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 it's gotten a little out of hand i guess and i don't know how much you pay attention to that oh i i hear enough of it but my kind of stance on that stuff is if you want to try stuff that's like completely out in left field then by all means try it but but don't lean on a ton of other people to try to figure it out for you. Like you're a lot of those guys are like doing this stuff and then they're creating so many other problems and they're like, now my stuff don't tune. And it's like, well, yeah, you know what I mean? It's yeah. So this spine charts off, not you got 250 grains up. Yeah. Front. Every, yeah. everything's off. <laughs> yeah. So for me, uh, just to tell you like how important that stuff is to me, I, I've never one time measured my FOC and target. Not once. Never could tell you what it, what it is now. Couldn't tell you what it's ever been. Uh, I am a hundred percent on accuracy when it comes to target stuff. Uh, the rest of it doesn't matter when it comes to hunting. As long as my arrow is about four hundred grains or a little over four hundred, that's really the number I shoot for. The reason it's four hundred grains is because it makes me legal everywhere I pretty much want to go. If I want to shoot, you know, hunt somewhere where there's a four hundred grain min- minimum, I'm good to go. Um, and I've never had a problem penetrating through anything. Uh, so, but it, but I pull a lot of poundage. I shoot 75 pounds. Um, so I think, you know, without putting the responsibility on somebody else to either a make crazy, you know, hundred percent FOC things work or, uh, low ultra lightweight zero FOC things work and putting that responsibility on a pro shop or putting that responsibility on, somebody else to try to help you get that 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 system to work i think that's crazy if you want to try it figure it out yourself because it's going to cause you it's going to cause so many headaches trying to figure out most of that stuff that it's just not not fair to waste other people's time with it and then i think for the most part most hunters like just in the middle of the road i think extreme in any direction is is not good. I mean, the, the, the industry standards of how people do things, that, that normal uh, middle of the area, is, it's the middle for a reason because it's worked for many, 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 many years for many people. And for the most part, you know, shot placement, definitely the most important thing. Um, and, and, you know, whenever you start running seven, eight, eight, nine hundred grain arrows, you know, you're dealing with trajectory arcs and stuff that are different. And so when you look at an animal that you might have a clear sight picture, 
and you think you have a clear path to that animal, like your trajectory is, you know, that arc is so so high that you might end up with other issues, you know, like hitting, hitting stuff. Um, so, you know, whenever you try to fix a problem with an extreme, you're probably going to create some other problems on the other side. So that's just the only thing that I would keep in mind. One of the things I, I bring up when you get some of the extremists is uh, the person that creates the problem, the panic and the pill is generally the guy that you should kind of look out for sometimes. Um, meaning if there's all of a sudden a penetration crisis and then the, the you know, the, the, the panic uh, gets created and then the, the magic pill is this crazy setup. I generally try not to listen to those guys. Now, you, you listen to, and I'm going to use me and Gillingham as an example. I can shoot through pretty much anything with the field tip with my compound because about the minimum poundage I shoot is 80, and I've definitely went mm-hmm. over 100. I pretty much shoot whatever I want, right? And and I did yep. shoot 175 up front. Um, I usually shot a 50-grain component system and a 125-grain point, and I would go up to 225. Keeping that in mind, I also know how to tune, so I'm not at my local pro shop causing them to pull their hair out. I would tune it at my house, and I knew uh, how an arrow works and how tuning works, and, you know, I yoke tuning if that's, you know. I could cheat the system and make a little more of an abstract, you know, arrow component system work, but it wasn't necessarily needed. You don't have to. I mean, when I say that, Cameron Haynes, he's a friend of mine. I respect Cameron. He's shooting a 90-pound bow right now. Less than 1% of the planet can probably handle 90 pounds correctly. He obviously can do mm-hmm. it fine. So can I. I don't think people should try to shoot 90 pounds. And, and in quite honest, I'm, I'm 44. Who knows what I'm going to, will I be able to shoot a bow at 50 from shooting 100 pounds for so long? Who knows, right? I mean, the long-term effects of heavy poundage, technology is that at this point, some of the Ashby studies and things like that were back in the day before compounds where all you had was momentum and, you know, it was probably more meat needed because technology wasn't here to where a 70 pound bow now with a four to 450 grain arrow is a very lethal setup with good momentum. Now you're not going to go hunt maybe Asian water buffalo with that, but anything in North America, I mean, my wife shoots a 400 and... 22 grain, uh, I got her set up with S- X Impact. She was shooting uh, a 246 last year and the year before. She shot an Aldad. I mean, it jumped when she shot right in the butt with a, last year was a 410 grain arrow and an iron wheel wide solid broadhead and got 18 inches of penetration after it went through the thickest part of the butt cheek at 46 yards. That's pretty impressive considering if you ask anybody on the Ashby theory and, and these heavy momentum pot posts or Facebook pages that arrow technically should have bounced off the, the animal. Well, it killed it. And people, again, they blame equipment a lot and, 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 and a lot, you know, it, again, the happy medium, uh, it, it accuracy is important. And I get thousands of questions about this of, I guarantee, cause you said 400 grains, my inbox is going to fill up that Danny McCarthy, one of the greatest archers that ever lived, doesn't know what he's talking about with a hunting setup. And I shit you not, Gillingham's the same way, which Gillingham is a little bit of extreme. How many animals have you mm-hmm. shot, Danny? A lot of them. Yeah, you can't count them, right, with fairly good luck. So, again, 
you, you, any extremist in the world, it's, you know, you gotta, you gotta, you have to take in consideration is this massive amount of point weight and component weight up front causing such erratic aero flight and tuning issues that you've really gone into the negatives, things like that. And, and you really, I mean, you said 400 grains, I tell people 450. You know, try to get your boat to four. You know, your air around four fifty for honey. And that's hunting. fine. I'm not like I said. I'm not telling you. I'm doing me, man. It just works for me. It's worked for me, hundred uh, percent. Like so, that's why I do it. You know, a lot of people. If if there's people listening, that's like, you know, gonna try a four hundred grain arrow, and then they gut shoot something or hit it in the hip or shoulder blade, and they don't kill an animal, and they're the kind of person that's gonna turn around and blame me for that like i didn't wasn't there i didn't shoot your animal in the gut <laughs> or in the shoulder blade so like there's got to be some some you know people holding themselves accountable like do do your own thing don't don't go try the ashby setup and, and not get it to work or you know gut shoot an animal and and then tell him it doesn't work either like it comes down to shot placement you put it where it's supposed to be it's going to kill the animal every time and when you start building a setup for when things go wrong i think people would be better off and and this is just me being honest i think people would be better off trying to figure out why it went wrong in the first place why they didn't hit them where they aimed and figure out how to fix that and they would probably have a lot better success than than trying to slow their arrows down to 200 feet per second because they they weigh a bunch or trying to speed their arrows up to you know, 400 feet per second and just be crazy light. I mean, there's just, you live on in the extremes of either side. And uh, I just don't think you're probably going to be, I think you're just putting your energy in the wrong spot. No, I, I that's I, what I'm trying to say. I, I agree. And I, I mention this to people all the time that are running, you know, statistical algorithms on arrow setups. And I'm like, have you got coaching and worked on your shot? And like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, you, you might want to, you know, practice more, you know, get, and, and again, this is everything. Arrow setup's important, practicing, obviously alignment, all this crap is important. But when you go to, to building your, your bow, a very happy medium is what I strongly suggest, meaning shoot the most pounds you can accurately and comfortably. Shoot the heaviest arrow you can with good speed and good momentum. Um, and when I say that, meaning if you have a 26 inch draw length and you're shooting 70 pounds, I don't think that you should shoot over a 500 grain arrow. I think you should probably shoot a fixed blade for animals and shoot four to 450 grains. You got decent speed. Your bow's relatively quiet. You know, if you're a knuckle dragon gorilla like me, I've got a little more room to play. I can pull more pounds back. But just stating you got to shoot 650 grains, yeah, it, the world doesn't work like that. And, I, and it sounds like you're agreeing with me like, you can get a you can get accuracy and, and decent momentum and decent speed are, are the key to victory. And once you start getting away from that path, I, I you're running into trouble. Um, and there isn't very many people. Yeah, so I just uh, weighed I just weighed my hunting arrow just to see it weighs four hundred and twenty one grains. So it's like that's it. Like, but and what? I don't I never even cared enough. I know it was going to be over <laughs> four hundred, so it's going to be legal anywhere I go. But that's how much I care about FOC. That like. I also know that I can draw it back and it'll hit behind the pin. And that's the most important thing for me. And, and what broadheads do you, do you shoot? Um, I shoot, I shoot the Generally. G5, um, dead meat. 
And I love that head. Yeah, those things leave one hell of a I hole. I mean, that's a yeah, wicked, wicked, wicked head for me. Crazy accurate and unbelievably lethal. Like, uh, uh, the, one of the interesting things about that for me, like, the last several whitetails that I've killed, like, died within within 20 yards of where I've shot. A couple of them didn't even know they were hardly hit. I shot them. They literally, you know, a little bit of reaction when the arrow zipped through them and then just looked around and was like, oh, what was that? And then just ended up starting to, one of them laid down right there and just kind of looked and then just slowly tipped his head down. But, like, they open with very little energy um, when they're zipping through and have, yeah, have never, I've, I've had great results with them. And I love their BMP head. That thing's a good, it's a good system. But that's, Another thing, oh, for, everybody for sure. needs to try their own stuff. But man, I've heard if I've heard it once, I've heard it a million times. Like my, I lost the animal because my broadhead didn't open up. I lost the animal because I probably sheared off a blade, or you know, there's just how many times are those failures. I'm not saying they don't happen. I'm just saying like hunters and fishermen, you guys are full of crap half the time, and everybody telling stories about. You know, never made a mistake. I didn't do anything wrong. I just lost the animal. Like, people need to start accepting some responsibility for making bad shots, bad efforts. It happens. There's, I'm not calling you a lesser person for losing an animal. I'm just yeah, saying. Calling them human. Blaming the right stuff allows <laughs> you to focus on fixing that, that problem. And, but pretending like, you know, it was somebody else's fault, you're just going to lose the next one and the next one. Well, and, and on that so, note, I mean, I, I I don't know how many people have told me my mechanical didn't open up, and I'm like, well, how do you know? Well, when I pulled it out of the dirt, what? and I'm like, uh, did you find the animal? No, and I'm like, well, and, and I'm not a, a giant proponent of anything other than do you and do what's comfortable for you, meaning I have no issues with mechanicals, and obviously now I shoot a stick, I'm shooting fixed blades, but I've I've seen definitely seen some mechanicals fail, but I've also seen fixed blades not spin true. A lot of people don't realize you need to spin your broadheads and make sure that they spin consistently. And in a mechanical um, or a, a cheaper fixed blade can be a much larger problem than a mechanical um, if it's not spinning correctly or if a guy isn't overly capable of tuning. It's a big giant rabbit hole to go down. But I think, Dan, you said it best. You said it multiple times. Do you. Do what's comfortable for you. Do what um, makes you feel warm and fuzzy and feel confident. And as long as that's not too far into the one end of the extremes or the other, I think you're in good shape. And I, I think you would agree with that. Yeah, 100%, 100%. All I'm saying is, like, when you're, you're taking on the responsibility to go out there and hunt and go out there and harvest something, it's your responsibility to test that equipment. You know, if you're going to shoot fixed blades, you should fire them all. You should make sure they're all going to – if you're going to pull that arrow out of the quiver and, and aim it at something and cut it loose on a live animal, you should have better shot it at a target and make sure it's not planing six inches to the left, eight inches to the left at, their, you know, 40 yards because your stuff's so out of tune or your broadhead's not aligned properly you know do that due diligence make sure that stuff's right make sure everything's sighted in properly uh make sure it works make sure the setup works before you you take it out into the field i mean i can't tell you how many times when i used to when i worked for cabela's back in the day night before gun season i mean there'd be a line waiting to have their gun bore sighted bore sighted (laughs) and it's like you, you do realize this isn't sighting your gun in 
This is like going to get you on a two foot by two foot piece of paper at 50 yards. This isn't, this isn't like go hunt with this. And they're like, no, just, you know, coming in to get it checked, make sure it's good to go in the morning. And it's like, holy cow. Like, like how many people, you know, that we told that to hadn't, they had no idea that, that, that wasn't perfect. (laughs) You know, I, that's, and that's what I'm saying. I'm not saying that's normal. I'm just saying, like, man, you know, accept that people got to accept the responsibility for their own stuff. If you're going to shoot an 800-grain arrow, I'm not telling you you're, you shouldn't. I'm just telling you to make it work. Make sure it's very efficient. Make sure it's actually going to, I think, be the best tool for the job for you. If you're going to shoot, you know, a 400-grain arrow, just make sure you're very efficient with it. Make sure you're probably not going to hit shoulder blade um stay away from the bones you know you just have to use it properly i just don't think like building for the worst case scenario is i mean people just don't do it i mean how many how many hunters roll around you know hunting with a bmg if just because if they hit a branch or hit a tree or you know hit a shoulder blade or how many guys wear a fireproof suit and a Hans device and a helmet to drive their car around. Yeah. That's a very good analogy. Uh, I just got into it. They build it for the worst case scenario, just for the, you know, one thing and don't use that, you know, same way of thinking anywhere else. Mathematically speaking, there's a hell of a lot better chance of hitting liver diaphragm and stomach than there is the front leg bone. That's just math. The leg bone's not very big. And so I I have gotten into arguments with guys. You know, when you're talking about the bone-breaking single bevel penetration, nothing wrong with single bevel broadheads. I've shot at least 100 animals with them. But I didn't shoot the single bevel broadhead specifically because I was aiming at the leg bone. That's just what tuned really good, and and I liked them, right? I just – when you cater to – you know, whitetails is one where I really suggest for guys – to to worry about one a silent bow but also um you know if you're uh you know a little bit bigger broadhead or a mechanical right you have bigger fixed blade or a mechanical they're a little edgy sometimes um you know you you, you, penetration isn't as big of an issue with a moose or an elk something like that and so if you do catch the stomach or the liver i like them to know that they got hit a little bit more than a little tiny you know bone breaking you know, single bevel broadhead. And again, that's just knowing your equipment, assessing what you need, picking what's going to work best for you and heading out the door, not saying, oh my God, I could hit the leg bone. I'm going to shoot 657 grains with a, you know, inch and an eight single bevel. That's kind of a bad way to look at it. You really want to just shoot what's going to be best all around. And, and that's really, we're beating a dead horse truly to death three or four times with this, but I think it's important. It gets pounded in people's heads to, um, use some common sense on their setup. Yeah. And and how it's used on the, on the other end, you know, when, when it comes down to it and that you're in that moment, like you have to know your equipment. And if you're one of the guys that built for that scenario, for that super, you know, tough scenario of, you know, penetrating through that, all the grass in an elk stomach or something like that on a quarter way shot. And you've got the build for that. You think you could do that? Well, if you decide to cut the arrow loose, then, you know, those results are on you. And if I'm hunting and it's a, I've only got a 400 grain arrow, 
I'm going to use that 400 grain arrow like it should be used. I'm not going to take that, you know, quartering two shot, that quartering away strong shot. I'm just, I'm just not. And each to each their own. I don't care if I kill anything. I really don't. I'm, uh, as far as like, I'm not going to take a marginal shot just because I, I don't really, I, I can eat a hundred tags. I don't care. You know, so I'm going to use my equipment the way I think it's going to be very efficient and very ethically used. And I think people should use their equipment the same, the same way. Man, you bringing that up is a good How, However point. they want, however they want to use it. You know what I mean? But at the same time, accept the responsibility of it. You take a super severe shot and you don't get the penetration. It ain't the broadhead's fault, man. It isn't the, isn't anything other than like the the decision to cut that arrow loose whenever you cut it loose, like hit or miss, harvest or don't. Like that's it's, it's on it's on you. No, I th- I think that what you just brought up, and then we can stop talking about this and hop off the podcast. One of the reasons I shot a heavier arrow and more poundage, I was very comfortable with it. I would probably take a, a more of a marginal shot than than Danny McCarthy would at times. And and again, I'm I'm more of a hunter than a tournament archer. And on day, and again, I'm not taking anything away from you at all, Danny. But on day twelve on a backpack hunt where you've lost thirteen pounds and there's a hundred and seventy eight inch mule deer cornering a little more than you'd care for. I'm going to take that shot because I just suffered for 12 days. This probably sounds horrible, but I know my equipment is more than capable of making the shot because of a 575 grain arrow and an 85 pound bow. If I was shooting a lesser of an arrow, and I'm glad you said that, you wouldn't take that shot. That is, you, you, I, I, you have I to know that. And I'm not passing any judgment on anybody that is. I'm just saying, like, knowing what the tool that you're carrying. And yeah, how dude, it's effectively going to be used is one of the what's smartest. important. Like if I'm shooting, if I'm shooting long range, and you know I'm going on a long range, a uh, long range shot's going to be taken on something like an, let's say an elk. It's illegal for a reason that nobody can use a 22 long rifle. You know, and and it's you're not going to take a 600 yard shot with it. But if you're packing a 338 or something like that, uh, then it becomes a possible you know, shot or, uh, uh, your, your probability of a clean harvest is, you know, higher and realistic. And I think that's, that's the thing. So whatever kind of hunter you are, you know, if you're, if you're going to take those shots that, that, uh, if you're not going to necessarily wait for that, you know, perfect picture, perfect broadside shot, like, and I'm not saying you have to, I'm not, advocating wounding animals by any means, but I'm just saying there's so many different personalities out there. I, I'm one of those guys that I just love watching them. Um, I'm not going on a 14-day back, backpack you know, hunt with, a, with my build. I'm not doing that. So I'm just trying to give some perspective to, like, now, why dude, what some you, people, some What, per, some what you said is, is one of the, the smartest. Yeah, what you, what you said, and it's one of the smartest things that's been said on this podcast that – people have to understand that you're like, I'll just eat a tag. I won't take the shot because I've been one of those guys that has said, Hey, I will take a a marginal shot because I try now that was with a compound, the stick. I have to be way more like Danny because I can't, (laughs) I can't take a more. I don't have the, you you know what a 575 grain arrow 
um, with a fixed blade flying at 285 feet per second is capable of. I can get away with a bit, a bit more. And people hearing that, I've gotten criticized for that. I've gotten complimented for that. And my point was more of what Danny said than what people kind of catered to was that I would at times take a little bit more marginal shot. My point was I am able to take that because of the setup I have in the poundage where if I didn't have that, I would not take the shot. And you saying that was great because, you know, there's shots I can't have my wife take at times. This is is what it is. We got to let it walk Um, because of her setup. That's just life and hunting. And there's certain times you have to, you know, being comfortable with your equipment, um, there's shots you're going to be able to take and shots you're, you're not going to be able to take. And, uh, you know, if I, Danny, if I took you on a, a backpack hunt and we went on a, a 12 to 14 day type of trip, um, would your setup change? I doubt it would. You're very confident in that setup. You just might not take a shot that, that I might take. There's nothing wrong with either one. I don't think that you would criticize me if I could shoot well enough and my setup was good enough to take the shot and I'm not going to criticize you for not taking it. And this is where you have to own your own shit that people tend to not and blame it on equipment. But <laughs> Yeah, I, I think that pretty much sums it up. And I think each animal, you know, is a little different too. You know, you could take a quarter away shot out of whitetail that's, you know, corn fed and there's not, you know, their stomachs aren't like a bag target like an elk. You know, so even if you have to take that quartered away shot, you're going to get, you know, massive amounts of penetration up through even through the through the stomach. Um, but an elk, you know, that's something to consider when they're sitting there eating. They're eating a bunch of grass and stuff like that. It's just it's a different it's a different uh, vital, you know. So just understanding how your stuff's how your stuff is going to perform, you know, being confident, A, that that arrow is going to go where I aim it. And then knowing what kind of energy you have in that arrow for momentum and understanding how that stuff works, I think is, is, uh, you know, pretty important. And, and above and beyond the fact that I'm very similar in the hunting side as I am the target side is, you know, I'm not opposed to changing the way I do things, but being familiar with how that stuff works, um, and knowing its limitations, I think is just as important as, as any of it. And that's why, you know, I take the shots that I, that I take because I know that that's a, you know, when I get full draw on an animal and he's broadside, he's, I'm, I'm, you know, trying to pick which mount I want to put on the wall already. And, and I'm just, you know, taking, I take, man, I'm a very conservative hunter. If people only knew like how conservative I am, even with, you know, tournament background for me, um, and being, uh, very efficient with my equipment, I, I've never killed a whitetail over 45 yards. And most of them I've, I mean, probably 90% of them I've shot inside of 25 yards. Um, I just don't, don't like taking long shots. I'm not, I'm, I'm comfortable with the distance is fine. I just, man, I just don't want to lose an animal. You know, I spend so much time watching some of them and, and putting in the time that, it, that I just hunt the way I do. And, that, and I hunt that way because that's what makes me happy. You know, and, and you do you. And everybody else, I think, uh, you know, put that focus on however you hunt, become super efficient with the way you hunt, know your equipment, make sure it's ready to perform at how, the way you hunt, and results will, you know, take care of themselves from there. 
No, definitely. Um, well, man, I've, I've sucked up an hour and 35 minutes of your life or maybe a little more before we hit record. Um, yeah, I can't thank you enough. This has been a great uh, podcast, very technical podcast. I'd never actually talked to Danny, uh, to my knowledge, but before this, I'm very good friends with Randy uh, Kitts, and he had spoken to me multiple times. You got to get Danny on the podcast. And um, I did one with Greg Poole the other day. He had uh, mentioned you had contact him about it. Um, and I'm like, man, this is probably now as good as ever. I don't, I don't think there's a tournament going on, uh, you know, right now. So I, I, I can't thank you enough for hopping on the podcast. Yeah, man, I enjoyed it. And, you know, mutual friends there. Uh, Randy's awesome. I, I love that guy to death. Uh, he's always talked super highly of you, and uh, I'm thankful for the opportunity to come on here and and uh, get to get to know you just through a podcast. Just friendly banner. No, for sure. At some point in time, um, we'll have to try to get like you and I and Levi to go um, on a hunt together. The crap talking between Levi and I is fairly epic. Uh, you seem like a guy that might hang back and laugh <laughs> the entire time. Levi and I, I, I really respect Levi. He's he's funny and he's spoken very highly of you whether in hunting camp or, you know, just shooting the shit on the phone. So um, I don't know how uh, Insta-famous or more Insta-famous you want to get, but do you uh, want to list your social media where people can go follow you and uh, pester you with questions? Yeah, uh, so <laughs> you can follow me on Instagram, just uh, Dan McCarthy or Facebook, Dan McCarthy. Um, those are pretty much the two platforms that I use. Gotcha. Cool. Well, again, I uh, can't thank you enough. Um, people, please listen to this with, uh, you know, open minds and, uh, you know, with what Danny said, you do you, I think is the best way and do what's most comfortable. And, uh, and yeah, watch Danny on the tournament scene on YouTube. I think competition media, archery, uh, bow junkie. Uh, you can watch Danny um, crushing people's souls on a weekly basis. Um, he did not do a very good job at highlighting how good he is, but um, I would not want you shooting at me. Uh, you, you, you are one of the best ever, man. So it's an honor to have you on here. And, uh, yeah, man, have a great day. And everybody, thanks for tuning in. I uh, appreciate it, Aaron. Thanks a lot. Yep.